You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. in San Francisco and this is Bloomberg Technology coming up in the next hour this week marks the beginning of a new chapter in the already long and twisty Elon Musk Twitter saga moves from the chief twit over the weekend and what's next plus Pinterest's latest earnings beat was a welcome bright spot compared to its peers like snap Meta, Alphabet. We'll catch up with CEO Bill Reddy to talk about its strategy to reignite the platform. And in China, an exodus of workers has threatened to disrupt output at the world's largest iPhone plant operated by Foxconn. Now the company is said to be raising wages by as much as 36% to keep production going. We're going to have all the details later this hour. This week, of course, marks the beginning of a new chapter in the Musk Twitter saga. In the span of just two days, he has completed the acquisition, fired Twitter's top executives, and taken over as chief twit. Joining us now for more, Mark Mahaney, senior managing director at Evercore ISI, who covered Twitter as a public company, and our very own senior executive tech editor, Brad Stone. So, Brad, he's also dissolved the board. He's the only board member as of now. What's actually happening inside Twitter at this moment? I think there's a lot of anxiety and confusion and speculation right now, Emily. Employees are bracing for layoffs. They're swapping phone numbers, connecting on LinkedIn. A lot of people assuming they're probably about to get kicked out of the system. Uh, we, we know, thanks to my colleague, Kurt Wagner, a lot of managers had to create lists over the weekend of employees that they were planning to let go. Today, nothing's been announced, but it really only seems a matter of time. And then other than that, they're throwing a lot of things against the wall. You heard this thing about maybe reviving Vine, Twitter's old uh, video sharing service that they closed in 2016. Twitter would have to rebuild it to convince creators to come back. They haven't been able to make money on that uh, when, they, when they had it, so that would be a big challenge. And then this idea of getting people to pay for that blue check mark that we enjoy, Emily, the, the verification. Um, $20 a month was floated. I, I think they're throwing some things against the wall. I, we, we do know that Elon wants to revive subscriptions at Twitter, so maybe that's one piece of a broader plan, but it's still very early. Mark, as someone who covered the company as an analyst for years, what do you make of it? What, what, have, what, what kind of a proposition is this really for investors today? 
Well, I think it's going to be a, um, I think it's going to be completely revamped over the next year or two. And, um, I, you know, I, I listened to Musk very carefully for the last uh, six months. I didn't necessarily hear business plans. I think he had a lot of other reasons for owning the asset. And so it's his now. Um, I think from a, from an, if this were to come out into the public markets again, my guess is that this business will be completely revamped. But, but if I just step back, Twitter didn't really do much in the public markets. It was there for what, seven years and uh, it barely moved over that course of that time. It's very volatile. It, um, it never really um, uh, gained dramatic share amongst, uh, amongst advertisers, marketers. It generated reasonable amount of revenue, 5 billion a year. They had reasonable free cash flow. But they could never really break through beyond being like a second or even a third tier advertising platform. I haven't heard anything from from us that suggests he's got a plan to to break him out of that. I think subscriptions are are limited as to long term strategy for for Twitter. Good strategy, but they don't dramatically move the needle. So I'm, I'm sort of I'm skeptically watching this from a distance. I hope he can improve the business model there. But I'm, I'm not I'm not holding my breath on that. But if he can, uh, wonderful. In the meantime, I, I think his intentions were very different than improving the business. And uh, you know, I wish him good luck with uh, the rest that he's trying to do with the business. <laughs> Brad, we reported that in the hours after his takeover, hate speech surged on the platform. Twitter responded, saying a lot of that was inauthentic behavior. Over the weekend, Must also retweeted an article with a conspiracy theory about the attack on House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's husband. Obviously, this is a person with a huge audience that obviously creates huge opportunities, but also real dangers. What does all of this tell you? Well, I mean, there was a breathtaking lack of respect with that tweet uh, for the former senator and first lady, Hillary Clinton, for the Speaker of the House and her husband, for the facts of the case, which are now very well established by the criminal complaint coming out of San Francisco. Uh, I mean, does Elon really believe the, the conspiracy theories? I don't think so. What it tells me is that, like, owning the libs, provoking Democrats, being contrarian, this is kind of the animating philosophy right now, not only of, the, of, of right-wing Republicans, but of the pro-business moderates like Elon and, and David Sachs. They just enjoy this pointless provocation. And, you know, this has been Elon's M.O. on Twitter for quite some time. Now, Jack Dorsey, we're just getting this headline. Jack Dorsey contributed 18 million Twitter shares to retain an indirect stake in this company under Elon Musk. Mark, what do you make of that? And what do potential advertisers who've, who've been working with Twitter for all these years make of what's to come? I mean, clearly there's a lot of uncertainty. Well, I'll just hit on the second part of the, the, the second question, uh, Emily. So this is this is key. I mean, this is this is how 99 um, percent of the revenue from Twitter in the past came from advertising. I, I find I don't really see a business model in the future that doesn't still have 90 percent plus of the revenue come from advertising like it does with every other social media asset. There's nothing wrong with that. It's a high margin business. Wonderful thing about social media is that they don't have to pay the content providers or they largely don't. So it's a very high margin business. You just need to sell effectively ads against it. One of the things that Twitter's been trying to do for the last couple of years is move beyond brand advertising to direct response advertising, which has kind of always been the power alley of internet advertising. The problem is that those dollars have gone to Google and they've gone to Facebook and a few other places and they've only trickled down to, uh, to Twitter, because in part because Twitter's never really had great tools for direct response to advertisers. So maybe that's all part of the, the fix 
at, uh, at Twitter from a business model perspective. That's not going to happen in a quarter or two. That's a year or two slog for that to happen. In the meantime, marketers, all this debate about uh, whether there's um, uh, censorship or not on uh, on Twitter, marketers, I think they just want something that's relatively well regulated. They don't want their brands put against uh, nasty content, whether that's whether that's uh, uh, verbal or whether it's graphic. Uh, and um, so I, I think that's uh, if something changes in the marketplace that makes it less uh, user friendly, makes it makes it uh, if there's more vulgarity on the site. I think advertisers will pull back from that. So there's a real tough balancing act here between what Musk is trying to do and what marketers want. And, uh, you know, I saw his tweets to market to marketers over the weekend. He said he would try to avoid the place becoming a hellscape. I think he does that for personal philosophical reasons, but also for business reasons, because if it does become a hellscape, advertisers will flee. Brad, curious what your take is on these Jack Dorsey filings. We're getting this all from a 13D that Jack Dorsey still retaining an indirect stake in Twitter. I mean, Jack Dorsey is is the author of this whole situation. He he personally solicited Elon to come buy the company. He long felt that Twitter would uh, do better as a private company. He felt taking it public was one of the company's big mistakes. So you know, it doesn't surprise me. He he's a big fan of Elon's. He he wants to uh, be a small part of of Twitter's makeover. He cares deeply for the company. Uh, so you know, he's putting his money where his mouth is. Um, it'll be interesting to see if he has any operational or advisory role in the new Twitter. Of course, it's, it's too soon to tell, but no, this doesn't surprise me at all. Well, speaking of that, I'm curious what you think about uh, him surrounding himself, Elon Musk surrounding himself with people like David Sachs and Jason Kalkanis, both of the All in Pod, both with a point of view. You've also got Amy Klobuchar, Senator Amy Klobuchar out there saying that she's worried that hate speech is an even bigger liability now on Twitter. Um, you know, Clearly, we're still waiting for the plans to form, but, you know, how, what sort of conclusions are we supposed to draw here about what kind of company he's going to be running? Well, well look, uh, I think everybody was bracing for Donald Trump to be reinstated onto Twitter at the very first day of Elon owning the company, and it didn't happen. You know, I feel a little sheepish praising Elon here for exercising restraint, but to, to go back to Mark's point, I think he's now got to balance some of his rhetoric with the realities of running a company and keeping the advertising base and keeping advertisers happy and, and fostering, you know, kind of kind of reasonably safe dialogue on the on the surface. You know, they've talked about an oversight board. We don't, there's a lot we don't know. Is that like Facebook's oversight board? a sort of kind of veto uh, appellate body, um, or is it more the management of the company? You know, these are all real, serious, hard questions that Elon and his his friends now, uh, who all have other jobs, by the way, have to have to determine. And you know, I I wish them well. These are these are tough decisions. Or who knows that CEO position, according to Elon, is open. He's just the chief twit. For now, uh, Bloomberg's Brad Stone, thank you so much. Mark Mahaney of Evercore. Mark, you're going to stick with us and help us break down uh, some of the big tech results we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Sticking with Twitter, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy said Musk's purchase of the platform should be scrutinized. Murphy tweeting, Today I am requesting the Committee on Foreign Investment to conduct an investigation into the national security implications of Saudi Arabia's purchase of Twitter. Now, among the investors backing Musk's takeover is Saudi Prince Al-Walid bin Talal through the Kingdom Holding Company and his private office, which agreed to roll over nearly 35 million Twitter shares worth about $1.9 billion.
back now with Mark Mahaney of Evercore to talk about big tech results. Mark, I've got to start with Meta. It's sold off more than 70% so far this year. I just checked its market cap, less than $250 million. We're back to October 2015 levels. I mean, would you have ever thought this could be possible um, after a, this company has achieved such historic highs? Uh, no, I didn't think it'd be possible. Um, uh, well, I guess I thought it was possible, but I didn't think it was probable or else I wouldn't have had a buy on it. Mike Hall's been dead wrong on this for the last uh, 12 months or even longer. This company hit this buzzsaw of these Apple privacy changes, com uh, competition from, um, uh, from TikTok, and now an advertising economic recession. And then this fourth kind of spoiler alert uh, issue or spoiler issue, which is what really came up last week, which is that the market wants them to cut out the spend on the metaverse, slash it in half, rain in expenses. It's a recession. When, when that happens, you're supposed to kind of marry down, ratchet down expenses and investments to kind of to kind of match up with uh, with the de deteriorating revenue. And the company's sort of refusing to do that. Zuckerberg is refusing to do that. And I think this last part is really just spite selling on a part of investors who were saying, you know, the, the it wasn't the revenue results. People expected softness there. It was that they, they that the clinging to this aggressive investment horizon in this environment. And the market has said, no, uh, that, that too much. It's no moss. Uh, we're, we're out of here. We're selling. Now, there were a couple of companies that had strong quarters. Apple, Pinterest, which is interesting given their role in the advertising business. But, of course, Alphabet. Meta, Microsoft, Amazon, all having a really uh, tough quarter reporting. What's the common thread here? Well, I just the only thing I'd uh, quibble with you on is Pinterest. Pinterest revenue results actually deteriorated. Now, the expectations had been set low enough that results came in a little bit better than expected. By the way, they did with Meta, too. Ad revenue came in a smidgen better than expected. So it wasn't a revenue problem. It's that people just don't want them investing out, particularly they don't want them investing in the metaverse where their return on that investment dollar is so uncertain. What's happening is uh, demand is softening across the board. So the two most interesting parts to me, uh, Emily, were uh, Google. This was the first quarter that Google said there was weakness in search. They hadn't said that in March. They hadn't said that in June quarter. They said that in the September quarter. And search is usually considered to be the most not recession-proof, but recession-resilient of all the ad platforms. So if Google's seeing it in search, you can you can pr be pretty sure that uh, just about every other company is seeing it. And then there's Amazon. Amazon in the June quarter was specifically asked whether they'd seen any signs of consumer softness, and the CFO said no. Well, things have changed. Now they're starting to see softness, and they saw it in Europe, maybe not surprisingly, and now it's starting to bleed over to the U.S. So the real question is, how much worse could it get? We know it's getting softer. Will it continue to get softer, and for how long? And that's that's a really hard one to know, but it's a macro call. And I think all of these companies, especially if they have exposure to the consumer, but even Microsoft and, Am and Amazon with AWS are, are saying that uh, enterprises are starting to slow down, too. We're heading into a recession. Demand trends are softening across the board. And any company who tells you that that's not the case is probably either doesn't know their business or is not being honest. Uh, interesting point you made about Pinterest. Bill Reddy, the new CEO, is going to be on the show uh, in, in, in a few minutes. I'm going to put your point to him. I do want to ask about the broader advertising landscape and what your outlook is. You know, you also cover Netflix, uh, which reversed a decline in subscribers for the first time in a while. You've got now the streamers going after a piece of the 
advertising pie, in addition to the social media companies going after the advertising pie. How is this all going to play out? Well, uh, by the way, I think Pinterest is maybe really well set up here. You know, you've got a, a turnaround story, um, an executive with a very good execution track record, an asset that may not have been run that well in the past. So there's a turnaround story. By the way, there sort of is at Netflix, too, which is why the stock has been a monster stock to the upside, finally, over the last uh, couple of months, because there's this new revenue stream that they're going to go from zero to 100. The question is just how quickly. But, you know, they are, there's uh, there's enormous demand uh, for from advertisers for net, uh, access to Netflix's uh, base. I mean, 220 million people who use the site, you know, an hour to two hours a day. So you got reach. You got frequency and you've got almost like a primetime audience, you know, a, a prime audience. I meant like uh, Amazon Prime-esque, the average household probably skews middle to upper, you know, middle income globally for Netflix. So there's a, just a lot that brand advertisers can tap into for the first time ever. You can own Netflix inventory. So that, that's what's there, there's something new. If you don't if you don't have something new, brand new in your in your fundamentals, they are going to get weaker in the back half of the year and going into next year. That's the advantage that Netflix has right here. I, I like Netflix is one of my top picks. So is Meta. I just didn't. I just thought Meta was going to show more uh, cost and investment uh, discipline uh, than uh, than they've let on. Mark, you've been covering tech for two decades. Do you think we're seeing a real inflection point here? Is there further to fall? And how how long does it take before this turns around? Well, so I, two two thoughts, um, and I love the way you set up the question. So yeah, we have a negative inflection here. These are. Tech is bigger than it was during the last cycle, uh, 08, 09, with the great housing, great financial crisis, great housing, great financial crisis. Those were the same thing. And uh, so it's much bigger. So it's more cyclical than it was back then. Look, our, our, our firm, Evercore ISI's call is that overall advertising is going to decline mid single digits next year, which probably means that digital advertising is going to be flat to up 5%. But there's another inflection point, though, that I'm super interested in. We'll have to come back to it, but that's AI. So what Facebook and uh, Google are doing, Meta and Alphabet, they're spending $70 billion combined next year on CapEx related to AI, artificial intelligence and machine learning. I'm fascinated, and Bill Reddy's been uh, uh, very thoughtful on this topic too. I'm fascinated by what's going to come out of this. The market is assuming that there's very little return on that AI investment, that AI capital expenditures. My guess is that Google and, and Meta probably know what they're doing and that we're going to see some sort of return on it. But, in, but And so when we see that, I don't think that's priced in. I think that creates some wonderful long-term buying opportunities on these two stocks. What I fear is that the stocks are first going to go down because of macro and recession before they start moving up because of artificial intelligence. All right. We're going to have to dig in uh, to artificial intelligence with you next time you're back on the show. Mark Mahaney of Evercore ISI. Always appreciate your perspective and especially your historical perspective, given how many years you've been doing this. We're going to have much more ahead. Stay with us. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message, and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise, and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. 
And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Another story we're continuing to watch. Electronic Arts will develop three video games inspired by Marvel comic book characters. That gives the company access to the most popular entertainment franchise in the world. The first game EA is making is based on Iron Man, that is the billionaire inventor and superhero who was the main character in one of the first hit Marvel movies. Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Let's get back to the markets and social media stocks on the move. Bloomberg's Ed Ludlow is back. Ed, take it away. Yeah, there was a pocket of weakness in the market when it comes to social media shares. We talked about how Meta closed its lowest level since October 2015. There were reports from Down Detector, 7,000 incidences of people saying that Instagram had crashed and was having some glitches and was down. But you would suspect that a lot of the pressure on this stock stems from that disappointing earnings report last week. Snap caught up with that down 1.7%. Pinterest, interesting, had its best day in more than two months last Friday after strong earnings. I think the street really liked what they saw, but giving up some of those gains in Monday's session, down 1.2%. Pinterest, really interesting stories to me. Look at the, the stock year to date relative to Meta and Snap. We know about softness in the advertising space, but actually relative to its peers, Pinterest has held up really well. I'm really interested in what the story is here and what investors see in Pinterest relative to a Meta, relative to a Snap. That said, of course, it is still down pretty significantly year to date. And I'm hoping that you can ask which direction the stock goes from here. All right, I will indeed, Ed. Thank you. Pinterest has been outpacing its peers, as Ed mentioned, posting strong third quarter results with an uptick in monthly active users after three straight quarters of declines. This as the social media industry grapples with a decrease in digital ad spend while marketers worry about economic uncertainty. Joining me now for more on this, Bill Reddy, Pinterest CEO, who's been on the job since late June. So how is it that Pinterest seemed to buck the ad media spiral that we saw with Snap and Meta and others, Bill? Well, first of all, thanks for having me, Emily. Uh, always a pleasure. Um, and I feel really great about how our team performed in Q3. I think you know, we're, we're doing some things that are fundamentally different than the rest of social media. Uh, and I think you're seeing that start to cut through with advertisers uh, and, and with users. Uh, we grew 10% year on year on a constant currency basis, uh, really outpacing a decelerating market and growing faster than a lot of our peers, which means we're, we're taking share. Uh, and I think part of that 
is that, you know, number one, we're a positive platform. We're not a place where people go to shout about their politics uh, or to present their seemingly perfect life that makes others feel negative. Uh, it's, it's a place where people go to find inspiration. Uh, it's a place where people go with an intent and a purpose. And that's a very unique thing in the space, both for what the users get as well as what advertisers get. It's a full funnel ad solution in that Advertisers can connect at the upper, mid, and lower funnel and really meet users at multiple points along their journey. And so the brand-safe nature of the platform paired with the full-funnel nature of it, uh, user growth returning, these things are all starting to really cut through, uh, and I think you see it demonstrated in our results. Let's talk about what advertisers get because obviously we're seeing a broader ad pullback. What is your outlook as we head into 2023 and how much of that, you know, Pinterest gains, do you, do you potentially gain ad market share or not as we head into a you know, potentially pronounced long-term economic downturn? Yeah, well, I think it's clear when you look at our performance relative here this past quarter uh, that we've been gaining share. Uh, and we're a smaller player than many of the others, and so I think there's a lot more opportunity for us to pick up share. That said, we know we outran a decelerating ad market this past quarter, and you know the market looks to still be choppy, and so we're looking to make sure that we show up with really great value for our advertisers. And we're doing that through you know a number of dimensions, you know, a couple of which I mentioned around really helping the advertisers meet the users throughout the full funnel. I think that's quite unique. When you compare us to other social media platforms, most of them have the user in sort of a lean back entertainment mode where the user is there for some other purpose, whether it's to watch a funny dance video or to view pictures of their friends. People come on Pinterest looking for products. More than half of them are there to shop. And so they're there with an intent and a purpose. And the fact that we get users at the upper, mid, and lower stage of their journeys means that we're able to help the advertiser connect across those and really meet users at this sort of magic moment where they have an idea, a general idea of what they want, but they haven't decided what to buy yet. And so that's really cutting through. And then finally, I just say, you know, every CMO out there has been approached by their CFO saying, okay, you've got to go drive performance. And sometimes that results in a bit of a, a, a Sophie's choice where that means that they oftentimes rush to last click, but it means they're not getting to tell their brand story. And what Pinterest is delivering uh, that we're finding really resonant with advertisers is the ability to tell their brand story in a performant way because we do have the lower funnel aspect of that as well and can, and can connect across that, that user journey. Let's talk a little bit about users because obviously investors are excited about the reignition of growth here. We had Mark Mahaney who covers Pinterest on earlier in the show. He said, to be fair, expectations for Pinterest were low, though he is very optimistic about you coming in and you know bringing a new perspective on how to manage this company. What are you doing to attract Gen Z and, and how and what is the evidence that that is working? Yeah, so you know, we return to user growth this quarter. We stabilize the user base, base, return to user growth. And we're really doing, doing that by leaning into the uniqueness of the platform. Uh, when you think about it as a positive place and a place where people go with intent and purpose, it really is unique across social media. It's also quite unique in that it's a place where people go to express their creativity. And so we're leveraging those things, leaning into them more drawing the contrast from the rest of social media and you know really leveraging the unique human curation that happens on our platform to drive better and more personalized experiences for our users to give you a tangible example of that you know you can go lots of places to find a great new dress but if you think about how to put together a great outfit and what uh, handbag and shoes and accessories might go really well with that dress, 
Um, yes, we're doing a lot with machine learning, as many others are, but machine learning is only as good as the signal that it's acting upon. And we have hundreds of millions of pinners that come to our platform and curate boards that tell us what kind of accessories might go well with that dress. So when you get recommendations here, it's not just from really great machine learning, it's really great machine learning acting upon signals from hundreds of millions of pinners that are telling us what things go well together, whether it's putting together an outfit or putting together a room or thinking about how to put together really great holiday plans uh, for what a great meal might be. Uh, all these things, we have great human curation that happens on the platform at scale that is just completely unique across the space. I don't think you really see that happening anyplace else. And when we pair that with great machine learning, great advertising capabilities, it's really cutting through to drive user growth and revenue growth. Now, you've made the point that Pinterest you see as, as being very different from other social media platforms. I'm so curious what you think about what's happening at Twitter. You know, it's unclear what the business model is even going to be, unclear whether advertisers are going to stick around. Is Twitter under Elon Musk possibly an opportunity for Pinterest to take some of those ad dollars or even to take some of that mind share? Or is that a totally different proposition? Well, I mean, I can't comment on any one specific player, but I would say that when you compare Pinterest to social media more broadly, uh, first I'd say, you know, we're at this really unique intersection between social search and commerce, which is totally different than other platforms. I think when you add on to that, the positive nature of our platform, which we tune for intentionally, uh, and we hear from users that it's a place that uh, they feel uplifted, they feel inspired, whereas oftentimes on other platforms, they're, you know, seeing people shout about their politics uh, or, you know, you know, generally activity that, you know, can lead them feeling, leave them feeling anxious or depressed or these kinds of things. And they feel lifted up on our platform. And so we're leaning into that. And as we do that, it makes it a brand safe space for advertisers. And so that's something that advertisers have understood about Pinterest for some time. We're leaning more and more into that. And we're seeing it cut through more and more versus the rest of social media. How has your Google commerce background come into play thus far? And have you had any sort of light bulb moments about how to make that connection from something you see on Pinterest to something that you buy much more concrete? Well, Emily, this is a great question because uh, while Pinterest is a full funnel platform, uh, you know it has historically been stronger in the upper and mid funnel, where people would find a lot of things they found interesting on Pinterest, but then they'd have to go somewhere else to go act upon that. And part of what we're doing is making sure that as people find things on Pinterest, that we're leaning into that intent to action, making things much more actionable. So I talked about on our earnings call, we want to make it so that every image of every product that you encounter on Pinterest becomes shoppable. Whether you find that in a scene or in user-generated content, when you see a great product, uh, even if it's you know some celebrity that's wearing it, you say, oh, I want that product or I want that same look, uh, that we're making that more and more shoppable for people. And as we do that, connecting that intent to action strengthens the lower funnel part of our business. And we think there's a lot more opportunity uh, to go there. I think it's historically, again, been a place where the, the platform wasn't as strong and we're making that much stronger over time. And there's good progress al already. I talked about shopping ads being up 50% year on year, conversions up 20%. So really good progress there, but a lot more to do there. And as we do it, that'll be better and better engagement for users and also really great advertising opportunities for our partners. Mm. Now, your collage making app Shuffles has seen really good traction, I know, uh, especially in the United States, helping with engagement and active users. What's the longer term vision there and how can you integrate sort of what you're learning from Shuffles into the broader experience? 
Yeah, so great question, Emily. You know, Shuffles, we've been, you know, quite excited by the progress with uh, Shuffles there, our collage making app that has just really resonated with Gen Z. And I think it's indicative of how there are a number of adjacent use cases that we can explore with Pinterest. They really lean into the unique nature of our platform where we do have people in that lean forward mode looking to express their creativity. So I think we have license to bring those kinds of experiences to users. Shuffles is one example of that. And I also say it's just one example of how we're cutting through with Gen Z. Even separate from Shuffles, our Gen Z user base has more than doubled since Q3 of 2019. And for this quarter, it was our fastest growing demographic. So Pinterest is cutting through with Gen Z users. And I think for a lot of the reasons that I, I shared already, that it is a positive place. It's a, a bit of an oasis uh, in the world of social media for, for users where uh, it's, a, it's a smaller circle. It's a place where they can you know, collaborate with closer friends uh, versus you know, uh, having to worry about being shouted down or these kinds of things. Uh, it's just felt as a, a safer and more inspiring space by many users. And so that's really resonating with Gen Z. And as we give them more and more tools like Shuffles, uh, we think there's a lot more we can do to serve that as a great up and coming demographic. All right, Pinterest CEO, Bill Reddy. Bill, thank you so much for joining us. As always, great thank to you, hear Emily. from you. Appreciate the extended conversation. All right, coming up, getting a second look. A new team is taking a crack at investigating Tether and whether the stablecoin executives committed a crime. That is next, this is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. A Justice Department probe into the stablecoin Tether is getting a fresh pair of eyes after struggling to reach a conclusion. Joining us now are Bloomberg crypto reporter Matt Robinson. And Matt, it's very unusual to redirect an investigation like this, what exactly is the DOJ looking into? 
Right. So the Justice Department has long been looking into Tether the last few years about uh, a variety of its statements, for for instance, how much money they have to back the uh, stablecoin, also to what they told banks when they were transacting. So this investigation started uh, with Maine. Justin has moved to prosecutors in Manhattan. Um, so they're looking to see if any sort of, you know, if there's bank fraud violations, uh, you know, given the size of um, Tether, it's the third largest cryptocurrency beyond, um, excuse me, behind uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum. They want to make sure that those, uh, you know, what they've told the banks and, and uh, is, is accurate. Remind us what is Tether? This is the third largest cryptocurrency. The creators have said it's backed by the US dollar, what does it actually mean to the crypto ecosystem? It's, it's very important, it's very unusual part of the crypto, uh, excuse me, crypto ecosystem because it's it's designed as a stable coin, it's, supposed to, it's like a digital uh, stand-in for dollars, it got started in 2014. You know, this was a time in the industry where, you know, there wasn't a lot that was stable, they wanted to keep your cash or you wanted to keep your dollars in something that, you know, wasn't going to move, you know, dramatically overnight. So it became just a crucial part of, of the uh, excuse me of the market because often folks oftentimes folks are going to be trading Bitcoin with tether or you know ethereum in tether and so it's grown to almost 70 billion dollars um, you know a massive fund and and you know the company has come into some other regulatory probes from from other agencies uh, for instance uh, the CFTC over the amount of money the amount of cash backing their stablecoin. So it's an enormously important part of the market and how it functions um, you know, with traders being able to use it to, to make speculative bets on, on other cryptocurrencies. What's the likelihood, Matt, that criminal charges actually happen here? Uh, you know, that's, that's obviously up for the DOJ uh, to decide. Um, you know, the, as we reported, the Tether is looking for declination letters, uh, which is basically the Justice Department saying, you know, we, we've looked at this and now, you know, we're, we're declining to, to pursue any charges. So that, that's, uh, you know, that remains to be seen. All right. Bloomberg's Matt Robinson. Matt, thank you so much for that. Uh, we will follow your reporting to stay up to date on this investigation. Workers at a Foxconn production plant in central China, the largest iPhone factory in the world, are walking off the job, hitching rides and dipping into their savings to escape another COVID lockdown. Bloomberg's Debbie Wu has all of the details for us. Debbie, in your story, you profile a woman named Dong Wang Wan, who is literally walked, I, I believe, 25 miles um, and, and quit the job to get out of there. Tell us more about what is happening. So what is happening is uh, COVID recently uh, spread through uh, Foxconn's uh, 200,000 people site in central China that makes uh, the world's most iPhones. And after that, uh, so following that, the, uh, we have seen uh, trash piling up uh, in dormitories near the campus, and also that uh, people uh, who uh, got into a quarantine sometimes are not getting uh, uh, meals, hot meals uh, in time, and then uh, sometimes they are just uh, uh, sort of getting only a bread for meals. So uh, uh, because of all these uh, issues, uh, 
some workers have decided that uh, they just want to uh, quit and go home. And because of a lack of uh, transportation and also uh, strict COVID controls that's still uh, uh, in place in uh, uh, places uh, at home, so uh, workers have to uh, walk back to uh, where they come from. So in the story that we reported, uh, this 20-year-old uh, has to uh, walk about nine hours to get home. You know, the, the, the rigid, you know, sometimes brutal hours at a Foxconn plant has been well documented. Documented. What is Foxconn doing to get around this? And is it impacting supply at all? Could this slow down iPhone production? So uh, what is happening is uh, Foxconn is raising wages by uh, almost a third. And then it is also trying to uh, get uh, backup capacity elsewhere online to make sure that the supply uh, impact on supply will be uh, minimized. And at the same time, uh, we have reported previously that uh, uh, due to uh, weakening demand, Apple is actually uh, canceling uh, the uh, ideas for adding more orders for new iPhones this year. So uh, it is sort of like uh, given uh, uh, economic headwinds uh, on the one hand and also uh, given uh, uh, the uh, number of workers required is probably not as many. Uh, I think it is, uh, we still need wait time, uh, more time to uh, figure out what exactly the impact is uh, coming out of this uh, COVID uh, incident in central China. And talk to us a little bit about how this fits into how President Xi has been handling COVID more recently against the backdrop of what's happening with the Chinese Communist Party. So uh, uh, after the uh, party congress, uh, originally, uh, previously, people may be expecting that uh, there may be indication that China can come out of uh, uh, zero COVID and then uh, focus more on uh, economic growth. But uh, clearly, this is not happening. So uh, uh, for instance, in uh, uh, Henan or in uh, Zhengzhou, where uh, Foxconn's uh, iPhone campus is uh, located in the uh, uh, local leaders there are still uh, saying that uh, they need to uh, prioritize uh, zero COVID and then uh, to uh, implement COVID combating measures. So I think it is mm -hmm. going to be a bit uh, difficult and challenging for uh, China really to come out of uh, zero COVID. And then I think it's hard to predict when uh, this might be uh, completely uh, uh, go away. All right. Uh, well, your story definitely worth a read, uh, reading about Dong Wanwan and many more. Debbie Wu for Bloomberg News. Thank you. And that does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Make sure you tune in Tuesday, our conversation with Uber CEO Dara Khosrowshahi. After the company reports results, you don't want to miss that. And of course, check out our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.